Father, thank You for this time together this morning. Thank You for time to give testimony of the goodness of Your Spirit. Lord, I pray that You would give us insights into how You desire for us to take the ashes and create them into something beautiful through the power of Your Spirit. So we invite You, Lord, to take control, to take over. And to speak in the name of Jesus, we pray all of these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelations chapter 12. Revelations chapter 12, verse 10. Being an overcomer. Revelation chapter 12, beginning with verse 10. Today we will have... Several that will share their story, their testimony with you. And as we share, I think it's always good for us to realize that it's not about if I am going to have difficulties in life. It's not about if struggles will come. It's not about if trials will, in, I, will I encounter trials in my life. The real question is, is what, I'm going to, what am I going to do when I get there? How am I going to handle it? When I'm there, what difference does my faith make when it comes to trials? John is writing here in the book of Revelation. And let me just tell you, the scholars are all over the map over what's occurring exactly here. But uh, we know this, that John is speaking a word of encouragement, a word of vision, a word of prophecy, if you would, about things that have occurred probably and things that would happen in the future. Now, depending on what your eschatology view, and eschatology is simply a big word for the second coming of Christ, uh, some may interpret this exclusively uh, as the future and some may interpret exclusively in the past. I quite frankly think he's speaking about both. He's talking about what has already occurred and what will occur. I think it's important that we don't put God's Word in a box and say, this was only for yesterday, or this is only for tomorrow. So as John is speaking here from the Isle of Patmos in which he was imprisoned, the vision that God has given him, this is what the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You see the picture, kind of a court setting, and the reference is made to Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, a title that's sometimes used for him, that accusations of unworthiness that are being hurled about those believers, about those followers of Christ. Why they are unworthy. Why they are not admissible. But yet John says that They've overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Now, what does that mean? Overcome by the blood of the Lamb. I mean, that's a church phrase we've all heard. But what, in fact, does it actually mean? 
Well, first of all, it means that we have overcome our sins. We haven't. Christ has overcome them for us. The forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, 22, that unless there is the shedding of blood, there cannot be forgiveness of sin. So that was the system that had been put in place. And we know in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were made. But now Christ has shed His blood. And we now overcome the penalty of our sin, the wages of our sin, so to speak, because Christ has shed His blood for us. The penalty has been paid. In Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus speak of the new covenant, the blood covenant that He would use to institute the new covenant that we have received. The new covenant that's given to us by grace. It's not a covenant that we have to earn or that we have to work our way into a position where we're acceptable to God Almighty. But because of Hebrews 9.22, because Christ has shed His own blood, now a new covenant has been offered to us as a covenant of grace paid in full by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Christ. And thirdly, it's this, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages have been paid. The price has been paid. There has to be a payment for sin. And Christ has paid that, and He has offered us in exchange for our sin, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We also can overcome and have overcome the need to prove ourselves worthy as adequate, as deserving. Because the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of yourselves. Nothing that you could do lest anyone should boast. I don't have to get good enough. I don't have to clean myself up. I don't have to hope that one day I'll be acceptable. I can receive the grace and the blood of the Lamb. It can be applied to my account through faith, through trusting Christ and His forgiveness. And we also can overcome the pride of needing to think and needing to appear that we got it all together. So many times we suffer with the image or the idea that nobody else struggles like I do. Nobody else has struggled with the things that I struggle with. If people knew, they probably wouldn't think as much of me. Matter of fact, if I was really a good Christian, should I really have even had to have dealt with any of these things? I mean, I've obviously done something wrong. That was Job's friend's mentality, if you'll remember. Obviously, you've sinned, Job. Obviously, you just need to get yourself right with God. But we all know that sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes trials just come our way, regardless of how good we are. And the great news is, is that God wants to redeem that. He wants to take those times and those difficulties, those ongoing circumstances that, quite frankly normally don't just go away. At minimum, we usually have a scar to show. And the truth of it is, most of us still deal with a lot of our battles on a very daily basis. That's really the testimony right there. 
that in spite of my circumstances, God, I believe. God, I trust. Jesus, I claim your blood and your power to sustain me through the time, through the day. I think of different individuals in Scripture of whom that's so very true. I think, to begin with, of Jacob. Remember the story of Jacob? Jacob who weasels his brother out of his birthright. And Jacob is so self-absorbed, so consumed with greed, that he literally steals from his own brother. But not without cost, because his brother determines, basically, I'm going to kill you. And so Jacob's mom is wise enough to say, Jacob, you need to get out of town for a while. Go see your Uncle Laban, who you've never met, and uh, travel a few hundred miles and go stay with him till your brother cools off. And so, sure enough, that's what Jacob has to do. He takes off. And on his journey, he encounters God, for the, really probably for the first time in any significant way. And he kind of cries out to God, sees a vision, and says, God, if you'll watch over me and you'll take care of me, then I, I will follow you and I'll try to trust you. And he makes some commitments there. They're not even really good commitments, quite frankly. But uh, it was his first time to really encounter God and to really make any form of commitment. And so he travels on and gets to his uncle Laban. And the trickster who has deceived his own brother now is deceived. And you know the story how he thinks he's working for one wife and then he gets another. Then he, so he serves seven years. Then he serves another seven years. And here I am, 14 years. And then another three years on top of that. His uncle kind of manipulates him into staying. And so 17 years later, I'm, I'm ready to go home. God gives him a light to head back home. And on the way home, he doesn't know, what about my brother? I mean, I manipulated him. I have now been deceived. What's going to happen? And once again, he encounters God in a way that changes him. Matter of fact, he goes from being known as Jacob the deceiver to Israel, one who wrestles with God, one who struggles with God. And I think it's neat that we now know the nation of Hebrews, of God's people, we now call them what? Israelites. Israelis. People who wrestle with God. Isn't it neat how God can use even a conceited deceiver and transform and use them for His glory? Or I, you may even think, or I, I often, it comes to my mind, I, I think of someone like Ruth. Great, great book. Uh, matter of fact, eighth book in the Old Testament. Here's a, a woman who really has been stripped of everything. She loses her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, her sister-in-law decides to take off, and her husband. So the only thing that she has left of her commitment of marriage is her mother-in-law. And she's a young girl. Why not just take off and go find a new husband? But she so takes serious that bond of family and that commitment that she tells her mother-in-law, Look, I'm going to stay with you, and I'm even going to follow you to your homeland. As a matter of fact, there's a scripture that sometimes you'll hear in weddings in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. We see the foreshadowing of Christ through her as we see uh, her husband to be Boaz. The very title that he has given is one of Kinsman Redeemer. So here's this woman who follows her mother-in-law with little hope, with no money and no esteem. And she chooses to be faithful in that relationship and committed to that relationship. And so God leads them back to their homeland. And when they get to Naomi's homeland, her mother-in-law's homeland, someone spots her. 
and sees her working hard, sees her work ethic, sees her servanthood, and realizes that she is gathering food, and food that's been left over, by the way, just these scraps for her mother-in-law. It so touches the heart of Boaz, he asks who she is, and eventually he redeems her. That's the term that she used, kinsman's redeemer. He, he marries her. And we know this. You know who her son was? Her son was Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. Or we might go on and look at a woman like Abigail. I, I, I love the story of Abigail in First Samuel chapter 25, because here's a woman who's married to, I don't know a better way, I'll use the word meathead, okay? The man is a complete meathead. You ever think you got a bad husband? Just read this count of First Samuel chapter 25, and you should feel much better about your spouse at that point, okay? His name is Nabal. It literally means foolish, okay? And Nabal is so self-consumed, he's so full of himself, that David's helped him in the past, and, and he decides, now that, I, now that David really can't do anything for me and David needs assistance, I'm just going to blow him off. Matter of fact, Nabal uses I, I, I like six times in just a three-verse uh, phrase. And, and we can always tell people who are consuming themselves because in about three minutes they'll say, I, 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 I. That's exactly what Nabal's doing. Nabal doesn't realize what a wonderful wife he has, what a wonderful life he has, and just how God has blessed him. He's just consumed with more and keeping it all for himself. And so David is so offended when he reaches out to Nabal, having helped Nabal in the past, that David, being hot-headed, decides, I'm going to go wipe him out. But here's Abigail, who has tolerated this knucklehead all of her married life, and yet again, he's, get, he's about to get us in trouble. I... Here's what, at minimum, Nabal, you're going to lose your life, and we may lose our property. I may lose my life. So she goes, having been faithful all throughout her marriage, she goes and she encounters David and says, please forgive my stupid husband, is basically what she said. Forgive me for saying that word, the S word. And please forgive my husband and, and find favor. And David's so impressed that he says, you, you basically have saved your family. You've basically saved him. And she goes back. And she just stays faithful. And then you know what happens. Nabal, um, you know, partying it up and finds out uh, some information and has a heart attack and dies. Okay? And so then Abigail ends up marrying David. But you know what? She didn't know any of that. She just stayed faithful, even to a knucklehead. Uh, I think there's a great story there. Or you might even go on into the New Testament and we see Luke. Luke, who wrote more in volume of the New Testament than anyone else that we have, but yet we don't see him in the forefront. He's a physician. He's well-educated. He probably has the best Greek of any of the New Testament writers, and he's just constantly writing details. He's supporting Paul and meeting his needs and ministering to him. And now we have the book of Luke and Acts because of someone who's faithful to the details. Well, what about Barnabas? Barnabas, we don't know a lot about Barnabas other than his, his name's been converted to that of son of encouragement. One who encourages, and, and the biblical word actually encouragement means one who helps people move forward. Literally, helps people move ahead, move forward. And that's what Barnabas did. I mean, he accepted Paul when everybody was kind of scared of Paul because he had been 
you know, his whole purpose in life was to exterminate Christianity, and then he gets saved. Hey, I don't know about that. I mean, we hear stories today, and we're not too sure about their salvation experience. And I promise you, they weren't. But yet, Barnabas took a chance, and he encouraged Paul. And, And what was interesting is he stayed with Paul and encouraged Paul, even when he probably recognized, hey, this guy is going to so outshine me. He's, he's much more skilled in, in rhetoric. He's a better speaker. He's a better communicator. He's, he's more versed in Scripture and in law. And soon enough, he begins to outshine Barnabas in a big way, Paul does. Barnabas also sees a financial need, and he goes and sells his field so that he can help meet that need. Barnabas also is the one who gave John Mark a second chance when he quit. John Mark goes on a journey with Paul, and when they needed him most, he takes off and runs back home. It's time for the next missionary journey, and Paul says, Hey, hey, I don't think so. John Mark, you stay here. And Barnabas says, No, let's give him a second chance. And he stands up to Paul, because Paul says, No, I'm not going to do it. And he stands up to Paul. And you know what happens. John Mark ends up going, and he's redeemed. And matter of fact... We see that with Barnabas. And what book of the gospel do we have by John Mark? The gospel of Mark. Matter of fact, his name was really, his Roman name was uh, Mark. And his, uh, his Jewish name was John, but we already had a John uh, when they were probably giving out names. And so that's how we got Mark and the gospel of John. So he was a kid who needed a second chance. He was a man who gave it to him. Or what about Solomon? A man who had everything. He had it all going his way. He had the wisdom, he had the money, he had the power, and he started off well, but he couldn't handle success. He started great, but boy, he finished really poorly. What a sad testimony to be given the power and the wealth of this life and to finish poorly. Hey, if there's nothing else I want said about me outside of knowing Christ, it's that I finish well that my, parents, my children and my grandchildren don't have to say, well, he was a great guy, didn't, didn't finish up too strong. Or Rahab. I love the story of Rahab. And just to remind you who Rahab is, in the book of Joshua, the children of Israel have been given authority by God to, to move in and basically repossess the land of Canaan. And they go in, and the first city they encounter is that of Jericho, the first major city they encounter. And Jericho is fortified with walls. Uh, Nobody's able to penetrate them. But Rahab hears the story of how God has been delivering this group of people called the Hebrews, and how He has used them, and how He has marched them through the desert, out of the land of Egypt, and supplied all their needs, and how He has carried them, and provided food for them, and she hears these stories and she probably, not probably, she existed in a community where it was nothing but pagan worship and she had probably been left really wanting by her religious affiliations. And here she is, she's a woman, looks like she's a single mom and she's a prostitute. And then she's living in the city wall, which was not a good sign. That was like the low, uh, low rent housing because if your city got attacked, they hit the wall first. So here's my house. They're throwing rocks and, and fire and arrows. So that was not a good place to live, but that's where she was relegated to live because of her situation. And she hears the stories, and I wonder if she prayed a prayer, God, if this is you, if it's, it's the real God, make yourself known. And lo and behold, people from some Hebrews come by. 
As a matter of fact, they're scouting the place out. And she hides them because it's found that they are there. And she hides them. She takes great risk for her own life and her family's life, hoping and believing that this could be the answer. This could be the God of whom I have desired. This could be a real life for me. I can stay here and play it safe. But I mean, can I be a prostitute forever? I don't like the life that I'm living right now, but here's some light that's been shed. I'll, I'll walk into this light. I'll take a chance. I'll risk it all that this is the one true God. And then we know the story. She also is one of the great-great-grandmothers of David in which also Christ comes out of that lineage, a prostitute. 